You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, where we unpack what's new and innovative in education. And today we're talking with Ben Nelson, founder, chairman, and CEO of Minerva Schools in San Francisco. Minerva was established to provide liberal arts and science education to top college students around the world. Partnering with the Keck Graduate Institute, it offers four-year undergraduate degrees in five accredited majors, arts and humanities, computational sciences, natural sciences, social sciences, and business, as well as two graduate degrees, including the Master's in Applied Arts and Sciences and a Master's in Applied Analysis and Decision-Making. So let's listen in as Ben shares more with Tom on what makes Minerva unique and how its vision has shifted a bit in the five years since he first shared his idea over dinner about what he saw as the university of the future. Ben Nelson, welcome to the Getting Smart Podcast. Thanks so much for having me. Ben, uh, I'm looking forward to learning about your uh, new adventure. What is Minerva? Well, Minerva is really a combination of two broad efforts. So the first effort is to construct and operate what would by hopefully all accounts be the university of the future, the university that uh, other universities would like to be. And that is to actually go back to the core principle of what a liberal arts education is all about, giving students and eventually graduates a set of intellectual frameworks through which to make decisions of consequence, decisions that impact other people in the world, and redefine the role of the university to focus more on intellectual development and less on the dissemination of content, which is free to begin with. The second part of Minerva is then to enable other institutions to indeed follow in our path and to understand that this isn't just something that you can do if you're starting from scratch and have no constraints like we did, but that you can actually reform existing institutions and provide a new way, and we believe a better way, of educating students than what's currently done. Since the, the dinner that we had in the Mission District about five years ago where you laid out this vision, I would say that second aspiration is new, the idea of, of helping other institutions transform. Is that fair to say? Well, it was a longer-term plan for us, but five years ago when I was thinking about Minerva, I thought that we would get to this part years and years from now, that uh, we would effectively create the new institution, we would operate it, attract a lot of students, show tremendous amount of success, and then five, ten years after they graduated, finally other institutions would kind of wake up and say, oh, wait, we should be doing it this way. And then we would, we would enable it to happen. So I imagine a lot of our listeners don't uh, know much about Minerva. So what is unique about the course of study, the undergraduate course of study at Minerva? Well, there are a few things that are, that are quite different. And I guess I'll summarize it by, by looking at, at kind of the four core elements that we do differently, which is who we educate, what we educate them on, how we educate them, and where we educate them. So on the who, Minerva is the most selective university in the United States. Last year, uh, we had a 1.9% acceptance rate. We don't yet know what our acceptance rate is this year, as we're still towards the tail end of the admissions process. Uh, but it will most likely be a similar figure. Since yeah. we're on that topic, like how many applications do you get? Uh, well, this year we we got over twenty thousand applicants wow. from over one hundred and sixty countries, uh, and this is only for our third class. So there's a there there's a an enormous amount of demand for for what it is that we do, and when you. Yes through 
20,000 applicants and we'll wind up accepting a couple of percentage of them. You have to approach it from a principled point of view. And, right. and so what, what we do is rather than going out and saying, okay, this is the size of class we want, we approach it from, the, from a student-centric perspective as we do everything at Minerva. And we say, well, these are the types of students that we would like. And then we measure each one of those 20,000 applicants against an absolute standard. And if the student surpasses that absolute standard, they're offered a chance to come to Minerva. And if they don't, then they're not offered that chance. And so we don't ask, nor do we know anything about the student's family, who mommy and daddy are, where their uh, sister or brother happened to go to school, uh, how rich they are. We don't even, even though our students come from all over the world, country of origin, uh, any kind of background type of information doesn't factor into the decision doesn't even have a place to be uh, reviewed in the decision committee process. And so we, at the beginning of a year, we have no idea how large our class is the following year. Similarly, we don't have a wait list. We don't say, oh, well, you know, we'd like to have 200 students next year. And so we'll accept 500 and hope that some of them will show up. And if they don't, we'll bring off other people from the wait list. We do no such thing. It's either in or out. And it's completely egalitarian, which means that our student body is both far more international than a traditional university. Three quarters of our students are not from the United States. And it's far more socioeconomically diverse because we don't have anything in the uh, admissions process that helps rich kids. And frankly, other universities, uh, including all of the quote unquote need blind institutions, bend over backwards to make sure that rich students have an easier way to get in than non-rich students. Right. And so because we don't do that, we have a very a much more uh, diverse student body, which we're very excited about. Then there's a the question of what we teach. And this is probably the most stark when you look at the first year, because in a first year in a traditional university, you'll get maybe a writing seminar, maybe a freshman seminar on here's college life or here's what college um, uh, level education is like. But you'll spend most of your time in large information dissemination lectures, either your biochem physics 101 or your calc 101 or your econ 101, or depending on what it is that you study, the big quote unquote gut courses that occupy most of the first two years of, of university. And the, the sad fact is that not only are, are these courses not instructionally sound, but we'll get to that in the third thing and how we teach, but they're not particularly relevant or important for a student to pay a university to teach them because right. all of the information is available online for free, right. much of which by the same universities. And so we don't offer any introductory level courses. We expect our students to learn the information. We require it of them. But because it's freely available online, we focus on frameworks of thinking. And so our first year curriculum involves four cornerstone courses that are all interrelated, teaching four systems of thought, uh, formal systems, which is uh, which com- teaches many of the components related to what is colloquially known as critical thinking, empirical systems, uh, which includes the components that make up creative thinking, complex systems, which help people understand how to effectively interact both with one another and cross systemically. So for example, how markets interact with legal systems or how individuals can interact with societies, etc. And then rhetorical systems or what's colloquially known as effective communications. And we teach 
over a hundred component parts, habits of mind and foundational concepts that create these four broad capacities of critical thinking, creative thinking, effective interactions, and effective communication. And we teach them in such a way that students can actually understand how to apply concepts in multiple contexts. This is actually the hardest part about education, is that when you teach somebody how to quote unquote think critically, even though very few institutions actually do that, you usually teach it within a context. And so you can teach a doctor who can think critically about making, about writing prescriptions, but then that doctor does not think very critically about how to, uh, for example, think about legal systems or think about their own finances or their own practice, etc. So the, to teach critical thinking in a way that is transferable, you need to actually teach the concept and recontextualize it for students over and over again until they understand the general principle. And that leads to the third thing we do very differently, which is how we teach. Because 100% of Minerva classes are small seminars that are fully active learning, which means that the students are always engaged with the material. And we do all of our classes online. So despite the fact that all of our students live together, which we'll get to in a second, and that all of our classes are fewer than 20 students in the class, we want to make sure that there's a camera pointed directly at the student's face at all times and at the professor's. And so that when there's a question that's going on in the room or students are engaged in breakout groups or polls or simulations, that we can ensure that everybody is engaged at all times, which means that our classes are exhausting. People actually use their brains during class. This is a crazy idea, but it does actually work. And and to have a fully active learning seminar is, is kind of a critical component. And then last difference, the fourth element is where we teach our students. Uh, and because we want our students not only to have an understanding of intellectual frameworks on how it is to go out and solve major problems in the world. And when they go into their major level courses or electives, et cetera, they explore more of that high level subject matter. Again, not introductory level, but where the major questions of fields are, are being posed today. We also want them to understand how the world works in the real sense. And so one part that helps is this international student body. But another part is, is actually where they live and how they live their day to day. And so Minerva students come and live in San Francisco for their first year, live in a residence hall in the heart of the city, and then don't have a campus. They have uh, they go grocery shopping with the local stores and they go to the local gyms and they uh, go to the local spoken word poetry slams and, and other uh, types of cultural uh, venues in the city. So really live as citizens. And then as this group, they then will travel to six other cities over the next six semesters. They go to Seoul in South Korea. They go to Hyderabad in India, Berlin, Germany. Buenos Aires, Argentina, uh, London in the United Kingdom, and Taipei and Taiwan, and then come back to San Francisco to graduate for their last month. That is very different than anything else in higher education, I think, on all four of those dimensions. Indeed. An engineered system, though, I, you know, what an extraordinary opportunity that you and your colleagues have had to think deeply about what it means to to be an effective, productive human being and to work backwards from that to, to try to build a sequence of learning experiences that would actually help to develop it. What what a rare opportunity. Yeah, and it, and it also afforded us the ability to create an institution without compromise. 
Because when you create an institution with a singular goal, right, which is to provide the most exceptional training possible for an undergraduate in any circumstance from any country, you make a lot of decisions that a traditional university with multiple stakeholders and constraints wouldn't make off the bat, right? Because if you have to satisfy different constituencies, you say, well, you know, if I sacrifice some undergraduate education quality, I can keep my alums happier, or I can keep my faculty happier, or I can deal with the fact that I have to spend all this money on my physical plant, or the fact that I need undergraduate tuition dollars to subsidize research. But when you start from a pure perspective, and you say, well, the only goal is to create the world's finest education, then you create a system that supports it. And our hope is that when you can demonstrate that, as I believe we have, then other institutions say, uh-oh, these compromises that we've been making, we can't afford to make anymore. And we have to go back and tell professors, sorry, we can't charge undergraduates to subsidize your time doing research. Or, sorry, you can't just lecture at undergraduates, it's not effective. Right? Um, or we can't just teach whatever you want to teach. We actually have to teach what they need to learn. How many students are you serving today? So today we have two classes worth of students. Our first class, which is uh, right now in Buenos Aires, is just about 120 students. And our second class, which is here in San Francisco, is just under 160 students. And next year's class, as we talked about, we have no idea how large they will be. But my, our assumption is they may be slightly larger than, than this year's class. Seems hard to plan logistically and uh, staffing-wise for an unknown number. Yeah, and so we, we've gotten quite good at just-in-time institutional growth, let's put it that way. And so what we do is, and if you think about what it requires to scale, there are three elements that you need. You need professors, you need support staff for the students, and you need housing. So on housing, we have to over-provision beds in San Francisco. So for right. example, we have two residence halls in San Francisco. One can has a capacity of 170 and one has a capacity of 130. And so last year, we used one of our residence halls and sublet the other. This year, the class was too big for the small one, so we moved them into the large residence hall and sublet the first. And that's okay. That, that works. In future years, because we know that our upperclassmen are moving to various cities, we actually have 12, sometimes 24 months of lead time to plan the housing that we need. And so we can do just the right size amount of, uh, of beds that are required and make sure that our students are staying together and have that community. So from the housing perspective, we really the only logistically hard part is in San Francisco. As far as the faculty and staff are concerned, we start the interview process for faculty and staff in the December, January, February timeframe, but we don't make offers until the March to May timeframe. So we make some offers because we know we're going to have additional students. We know we're going to have uh, need to teach some more. Uh, and then we wait until May to make the final offers when we know the size of the class. Uh, and so and that gives us three or four months to bring people on board, to do training, and for them to, to be ready to uh, serve the students next year. Is your uh, faculty pipeline as, as uh, oversubscribed as the students? Any, any trouble finding faculty? 
it's actually more oversubscribed. Wow. So la- last year we had a 1.2% acceptance rate for our faculty. This year we're assuming that we would bring aboard 14, 15 new faculty members and we've had more than 1,700 applicants. Wow. Next, Ben shares the unexpected parallels that he's observed between his experiences building Minerva and his former career in the tech world, where he helped build Snapfish when it was just a startup, now the world's largest personal photo publishing service. Ben, you had a lot of success in, uh, the, in the tech world. Uh, what have you learned over the last five years as uh, you've built this world-class institution of higher learning? Well, it's I've learned a lot of things. Um, there, there are a lot of parallels, really, to what I was doing before, which is which is not what I actually expected. I expected to walk into a, a completely different domain uh, with totally different rules. But for example, we we talked a little bit earlier about the the demand of other institutions to that are starting to come to us and say, "Hey, can we adopt what it is that you've built?" That same thing happened in my in my previous life. We 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 built a, uh, a system, a service for consumers using uh, to to generate uh, photo products, and I was in the photo business, which was very very different than higher education. But about five years after we started, existing large photo retailers came to us and said, you know, we've been trying to do uh, online services for photography for you know five ten years, and they're terrible. Uh, we just wanted to use what you do, what you've built, and can you work with us and help us get get there? And for us, in in many ways, we're starting to hear that. And and the nice thing is that when people approach us, it's not so much them saying, "Oh, we've tried online." It's to say, "Look, our curriculum needs help." We get Senate, Senate uh, faculty Senate uh, committees together to propose new looks at curriculum, and they there is break into fighting and politics, and you know my course should be offered and my course should be offered, etc. And and usually we we reform the curriculum and it looks exactly the same as it did before, and we're not happy with it. You kind of started from scratch. You don't have to deal with this. It's in many ways easier to just say, "Look, we're just going to you know bring in uh, uh, what what Minerva's doing and see how that works." And, and so we, we've started engaging in those conversations years before we expected to, frankly, a little bit before we're ready to engage in these types of conversations. So uh, we're a little bit scrambling to, uh, to deal with the incoming demand uh, on this thing. And we're not sure when uh, the first uh, instantiation of this will, will be live, but uh, I would be surprised if it, if it doesn't happen in the next couple of years. I imagine there are a few examples of things that work better than you thought in terms of the design and things that uh, that just didn't didn't work. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, there's there there are a lot of things that we we thought that we would need to do that didn't work out. So uh, so for example, one of the things that that we thought early on was that we needed to be kind of the the convener of the the science of learning and. You know, bring people from all, from all over and spend a lot of time and effort on on research and highlighting people who've been doing great things across the industry, etc. But you know, we're a small organization, and we we could never really give it the kind of attention and focus that that very worthwhile effort deserves. And so we basically decided that that was not a good area of focus for us. There are other things that I wouldn't say didn't work 
at all, but that we had to do course corrections. So for example, one of the first cities that we were thinking of, of bringing our students to was Istanbul. And for a long time, Istanbul was the city that uh, we, were, we wanted to, to bring students to, or right. was the city in their fourth year. It's an amazing city. It's a spectacular culture. But the current government suspended academic freedom. Right. So we couldn't go. So, you know, we're, we're delighted that we're going to Taipei, right? Uh, but, you know, we're, we're sad we're not going to yeah. Istanbul, right? But, it, so, but it, as a hypothesis, the travel is, is just as important as you anticipated, isn't it? Absolutely. Frankly, in today's world, I think even more so. I'll tell you one of the, the saddest things is, you know, we have criteria for cities, including academic freedom and, and good power and bandwidth infrastructure, and et cetera, et cetera. But one of the criteria of cities, one of the, the litmus tests on whether or not a city can be a Minerva city or not, is whether or not it has free and open visa access to every citizen in the world. And <laughs> I have to tell you, I did not think that San Francisco right. could ever fail any of our litmus tests. Right. You may uh, end up moving to Vancouver or something. So, so and that's, and, you know, we, we certainly hope that we won't need to, wow. but that is, that is how, you know, the state of the, of the craziness of the world today, right. where you could actually have to have conversations like that, I think is why it was one of the main reasons why this kind of endeavor, which is unabashedly international, unabashedly anti-border, uh, unabashedly positive and looking at the the world as a win-win situation where it's not one per person or people win versus another. Um, I think that's one of the reasons why we're so important. You're listening to the Getting Smart Podcast, and today we're chatting with Ben Nelson of Minerva about this unique higher education option for students. If you'd like to hear about other innovative college models, check out Season 2, Episode 19, where Tom interviews Olin College of Engineering students around their higher education project-based learning experiences at Olin and how they feel it's made a difference in their college education. In addition to the Olin student interview, season two, episode 42 of our podcast features Gordon Jones, the Dean of Boise State University's College of Innovation and Design. In this podcast, Gordon discusses how the college focuses on incubating the most innovative and exciting ideas in higher education. You'll find both of these podcasts on our iTunes and SoundCloud channels, along with more than 80 additional episodes featuring ed leaders speaking on topics ranging from design thinking to early college success to helping students build global competencies. While you're there, be sure to subscribe, rate us, and leave a review. And we'd love it if you consider sharing our podcast with others via whatever social networks you use. Now back to this interview, where Ben shares the biggest pedagogical advance that Minerva provides for its students, as well as the origins of the six principles it upholds. There are many, uh, many of us, particularly in K-12, thinking hard about personalized learning with the hypothesis that we can engineer a unique pathway for each student. And we're also thinking about progress based on demonstrated mastery. So each student might not only have their unique pathway, but uh, their unique pacing. Uh, but in contrast, it sounds like you have organized a cohort-based course of study. Is that fair? Yes, except we have elements of mastery incorporated both in our prerequisites as well as during the Minerva 
process. So let me explain how both of those work. So first and foremost, competency-based education, I think, is the absolute future for content dissemination, right? The, the, the concept that the best way to teach calculus is to take a group of 40 students with varying strengths in, in mathematics and say, oh, let's just teach all of you in the same pace is a little bit absurd, it's almost by definition going to be better if it's individualized and personalized right. towards the student. And so we get away, quote unquote, with not having to create an adaptive learning system because we simply don't teach content, right? right. We, we assume that you, you, you also said that you have standards-based admission. So you have set a, a exactly. very, very high floor. And so you you do begin from a competency-based place where you're, you're not going to be part of the cohort if you haven't demonstrated at a very high level uh, basic reading, writing, and uh, mathematics, critical thinking. Exactly. Right? exactly. And not only that, we have our students learn a bunch of other things on Earth. So for example, between the time you're admitted to Minerva and the time, between the time you start, you have to learn how to code in Python. Now, we're not going to teach you how to code in Python. Mm. We're going to give you a bunch of free resources that will help you learn, but You've got your four or five months, and some people will be able to learn it in three weeks, and some people will need their entire four months to do it, right? And that's okay. But by the time they show up, they've got to know it, right? And, and, that's, and that's an important aspect on the content acquisition side. But in intellectual development, people also develop at different uh, lengths. And this is where space mastery comes in that also needs to be tailored. And probably the, the biggest pedagogical advance that Minerva – has brought to bear is the ability to provide effectively one-on-one -on -one tutorial level of education at seminar scale. Now, how do we do that? I mentioned that we introduced more, more than 100 of these habits of mind and foundational concepts right. in our first year. But they're not just introduced in the first year and then left alone. Students are actually graded on their practice of those habits and concepts throughout their entire four years at Minerva. So if I'm taking an advanced course in our computational science uh, college or, or in our business college or arts and humanities college or what have you, I'd not only get graded on the subject matter and learning objectives of that particular course, I get assessed on dozens of different habits and concepts that I learned years before. And our system, because all of our assessments are coded and connected to the students and because all of our classes are technology mediated, we know which students are struggling to master certain skills. And so if there's one student who's already mastered uh, the idea of breaking problems down into their component parts, but another student that struggles to know when to trigger that, well, the system can prompt the professor on a question that involves that habit, habit of mind, to bring forward one student versus another, or in a breakout group to pair them together, right? And so what, what you can do, not with necessarily content-based mastery, but with thinking framework mastery, mastery that you have to have conversation with a group of peers and an expert to be able to advance, is that you can create, using technology, a spaced time to mastery, even though you're all uh, working together on larger, more holistic problems. The institution has 
uh, shares six principles, be unconventional, being human, confident, thoughtful, selective, authentic, driven. Interesting list. Uh, where did they come from? What do they mean? And are they real in the lives of uh, faculty and students? Yeah, absolutely. On the latter part, we have a um, a credo, a mantra that we that we use uh, a great deal, which is that Minerva is really about achieving extraordinary. And when you select students with such a fine tooth comb, and really scour the world for for talent and people that we believe in, people that we think, given the right tools, should be in positions to drive the world and to progress as opposed to for selfish reasons, uh, kind of the, the, the ideal of Minerva, the goddess uh, in, in ancient Roman times, you have to really think very thoroughly about what it is that extraordinary means. You can have all sorts of spectacular outcomes that are not necessarily beneficial to humanity. You can have uh, a lot of um, things that have great impact, but aren't necessarily in the right direction or aren't in one of several right directions that you can go, right? There's never really one answer, but there are many wrong answers, right? And, and we have to be able to distinguish between the range of right answers and what are the range of wrong answers uh, for the world. And so and so what we did was we went out and, and really thought through at the very beginning uh, stages of, of the creation of Minerva, what is extraordinary uh, all about? And how do you think about things in an unconventional way, but that isn't unconventional for the sake of being unconventional? And how are you being selective, not for the sake of saying that you're selective, but to make sure that you are bringing together elements that belong with one another, right? I mean, you could you could say, oh, you know, we'd be wouldn't it be great if we accepted a whole bunch more people and gave them the opportunity for Minerva? Well, if we did that and we lowered standards, then we'd have to we'd have a very high dropout rate, right? Because right? we have a very difficult uh, curriculum, and so thinking about doing it with confidence, yet at the same time being human and and being both selective and unconventional, there are a lot of uh, dichotomies here in uh, in what we do, but balancing those things out makes a lot of sense. And what we do to make sure that these principles aren't just theoretical, but that they really are uh, alive is that every year after the end of the academic year, we actually bring all of our faculty and staff together in a two-day active learning session where we basically spend the entire time working on those principles and seeing how what we've done in reflecting about the, pre- the year that has gone by has lived up to those principles and what has not. And then moving forward, what do we need to do to incorporate them? And we've now done this for uh, three years. This year is going to be our fourth year doing it. And it's, uh, and it's a really important part of living up to our values and living up to our standards. Ben, you have a new master's in applied analysis and decision making. When when does that launch? It did. We had uh, we have a very small pilot uh, that we uh, that we launched this past year, uh, very quietly. Unlike our undergraduate program, which is very broad and open nomination that we again scour the world for, the master's program is really focused on trying to uh, uh, to see what the Minerva level education decision-making process can can do at an advanced level. So this is 
not over a four-year period, but over a, a, a one-year period, a little, a little bit longer than a one-year period, how do we make sure that we have the Habits of Mind foundational concepts introduced and then applied in various ways, but for people who've already done their undergraduate degree and are in positions of making those decisions important decisions themselves are on the cusp of doing that. Um, and so we are continuing a very, very, very small cohort. Uh, we had 10 students this year. We're going to have about 15 students at most next year. So unlike Minerva, this is a, or the Minerva undergraduate program, the Minerva graduate program is uh, very much space constrained, but it's a 20 month part-time program. You can do it remotely. You can actually do it from anywhere in the world. And it, it brings three of our systemic frameworks of thinking, the uh, formal, empirical, and complex systems, effectively helping you think about how to break problems down into their component parts, how to create empirically-based uh, solutions and creative solutions to those problems, and then how to think through second and third-order effects of those problems as they interact with various systems uh, around you. So it's a very, very advanced process of, of thinking through decision-making. And so far, it has been going extremely well. Uh, we, we, we couldn't be happier with both the students in the master's program, but also in how these core frameworks translate uh, very well into graduate education as well. This, the sad thing to say is that the master's is actually not an open application process. You, you, uh, you effectively have to know somebody in the Minerva community and be nominated by them. So, um, and that's probably going to be the case for both this coming class that starts in September and perhaps the class that starts the year after. Uh, over time, we're, we're probably going to be opening it up a little bit more uh, but if you do happen to know someone or can get in touch with somebody in the Minerva world, then we'd, we'd be happy to see uh, nominations. Ben, thanks for the update on Minerva. Uh, it, it's obvious in early in its life that it's uh, one of the most important institutions of uh, higher learning on the planet. Uh, you have really taken full advantage of a clean canvas and have really produced something spectacular that we can all uh, learn from. So we, we deeply appreciate the work that you and your colleagues are doing. Thanks so much, Tommy. We, we appreciate uh, getting our word on and, and always happy to have the, the conversation. Thanks to Ben Nelson for speaking with us today, to Tom Vanderark for another great interview, and to Kat Wedgwood for producing this podcast with mixing support from Troy Lund. Be sure to check out the Getting Smart podcast on iTunes. And while you're there, subscribe and rate us. For more on all things innovations and learning, check out our blog as well at gettingsmart.com. For the Getting Smart podcast, this is Kat and Megan signing off. 